Welcome to Say What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. Today we get to sit down with Aaron Kindle. Aaron is the host of the National Wildlife Federation's Outdoors podcast, and he hosted me on that podcast a couple weeks ago, and now I get the privilege of returning the favor and flip the seats on him. Aaron is also the Director for Sporting Advocacy for NWF and has been raised and is enamored of the West just as I am, especially of fish and all things fishing and getting out and especially trying to improve habitat for fish to survive in the future. Aaron's a great voice for the West and for conservation in a time we desperately need it. If you listen to this show on Apple Podcasts, I'd be delighted if you'd consider giving us a rating and even writing a review in your own words. It really helps to boost our visibility and get this show out into the world. Also, if you're looking for something to throw on your grill this summer, look no further than avaswild.com. We will provide you with the world's best protein, Bristol Bay sockeye salmon, always wild, always regenerative, always sustainable. You can get it in two fillets, four fillets, six fillets, delivered to your door, subscriptions, a la carte, it's up to you. In any case, you can get it anytime at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. Thank you for listening this week. We'll see you next week. Aaron Kindle, welcome. Where are you coming at us from? I'm in Salada, Colorado. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, you know, it was such a, a great opportunity to uh, jump on your show, and um, I had such a really great conversation with you that, you know, we need to do this again. So uh, so here we go. And um, now I get to turn the hot seat over to you and see how see how you like that. Yes, um, sir. Yeah, man. So, well, you know, we are definitely, you know, clearly tied by this uh, great love of wild things and wild places. And, um, you know, my audience knows uh, uh, probably – too much about my story. Uh, you know, we're going to give him a break on that. I, I'd love to hear today about your story. How did you, Aaron, come into loving wild things and wild places and and do this work that you do to save these things you love? Uh, you do it tirelessly, and there's got to be a, a good backstory on that. Can you share that with us? Sure, I'll give it a try. Uh, probably shouldn't be here really, in a lot of ways, as far as being a conservationist. I grew up in small town Wyoming, center of Wyoming, on the, uh, right near the R Wind River Reservation. Actually, the town is in the Wind River Reservation, and that provides a lot of interesting uh, politics and, and racial issues and, and so on, as you might imagine. Um, and grew up, you know, in a very conservative town uh, from from the descendants of miners and energy developers and, you know, never, never had anybody really uh, in my close circle that was, you know, a conservationist with the exception of uh, my father's parents. My, my grandfather on that side was a, was an educator and uh, he, he was a park ranger uh, at times and he was just really a, a naturalist. And he probably gave me, you know, some of the first seeds that were more developed, right? Like my, my family always went outside. My, my dad was a bird hunter and, you know, we definitely spent a lot of time outside, but no one really ever talked about conservation. So, you know, the, where I grew up and who I spent most time with, uh, it would likely be that I wouldn't ever end up being a conservationist. Right. Um, hmm. but at the same time, that perspective at some point, I think, you know, maybe 13, 14, 15 years old, when you start maybe asking questions and going, hey, what is this? And then I wasn't hearing good enough answers, to be honest with you, about, well, how, what about these things don't seem congruent? These things don't seem like 
they match up. What about that? And the answers were never um, satisfactory, let's say. And so, you know, uh, I always loved being outside. And then when it was obvious that you need to take care of outside at that age, I started seeing things that were, you know, beyond just non incongruent, um, were also disrespectful. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up in a place, I spent a lot of time with, with people who might drive down the road and, and see a raven on a post and just shoot it and drive away. Um, you know, and it, it was about that age, 15 years old so or, or so, that I said, you know, that's not right. And, I, and I'm, I'm wondering what this is and started asking those questions. And um, from there, I kind of just decided I'm not going to hunt at all. I, I don't, if that's what hunting is, then uh, I'm not going to do it. And like I said, my dad was a bird hunter, but he didn't bird hunt that much. And, and it wasn't him that I was out with. He was an ethical hunter. He just wasn't that into hunting or, you know, he, we'd go out and chop wood and spend time fishing and doing things. Uh, but I just saw some things, a long way of saying, I just saw some things that I said, no, nah, that's not me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually I, I sold the couple guns I had and I said, I'm not hunting anymore. And, and it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties, I moved to Montana uh, to go to graduate school. And I met some people who showed me that, you know, whether it be hunting or outdoors or, or whatnot, particularly with hunting, because hunting is a sensitive thing, right? Like if you hunt, you, you need the people who help you feel good about it because it's, you're taking a life. It's a serious thing. It's a, that's for sure. You know, you don't, you don't do that haphazardly. And that was the most sensitive aspect of growing up, uh, but so the reason I went to Montana for graduate school was like, where is the wildest place that I could go to graduate school and have all this wild land around me and rivers and all the things that I love. And so I went there and I found some people that were hunters who, believe it or not, were former PETA activists and had a very developed sense of why they were hunters. Uh, it took, they had been down a lot longer road than I had even. Um, and that really was the first time I got to talk to somebody intellectually about hunting and what it means and, and in a deeper level. And so that's kind of way how I got back to hunting. How I got into conservation is, you know, I lived in Colorado and Montana and Wyoming my whole life. And you're just surrounded by all these things. And from those young ages, I knew that these things were things that were precious and special and worth protecting. And, uh, worth taking care of. And so, you know, I, I went to uh, Gunnison, Colorado for, for undergrad, amazing place. Gunnison County's huge, 85% public land. You can do everything under the sun outside there. And just that immersion along with this kind of wanting to learn on a deeper level, just kind of obviously said, well, you know what you should do is you should work doing that. You should try to find a career doing that. Um, and so that's kind of how I got initially into conservation and I could talk more. I feel like I'm talking a lot and I'm, <laughs> I'm used to doing my podcast going, I, I shouldn't talk so much. So it's funny. You tell we're, me. Yeah. We're, we're in reverse roles here. I'm visualizing everything you're talking about. And, um, you know, to the earlier point, we had a similar, similar trajectory. You know, I, I kind of sat out from fishing and hunting after being head over heels for it when I was a young person, starting when I was um, eight, I started hunting for the first time and I was two when my dad took me out salmon fishing for the first time. Um, but you know, high school, a little bit of into college was, you know, playing sports and chasing girls and doing, doing what you do. Um, but, uh, the, there was a kernel that brought me back around and I'm curious if we have the same kernel, you know, going out into the wild and, and looking out over the potholes where we would duck hunt and watching the sun come up and the way that it hit the light, uh, the light hit the, the reeds and, uh, this, the whistling sound of the duck's wing, you know, there was obviously like the gunpowder and the guns and the gear and the, you know, camaraderie and all that stuff too. But really for me at the root of all that stuff was this thing that was bigger than me. Was that a similar thing for you that that brought you back to hunting and then conservation eventually? 
Yeah, maybe similar, uh, maybe a little bit different in some ways in that, you know, along the way, while I was seeing things like, you know, wanton disregard and disrespect for, for wildlife, I was also noticing that there's injustice in it, right? That there's like, that critter didn't deserve that. And if you're going to take the life, you better damn sure be respectful of that life. Um, and then at the same time, you know, this is like mid nineties, like Rodney King, lots of other social things happening, lots of, you know, seeing things out there that are like, these don't add up and, and they're not respectful of both people and wildlife and wild places. And, and, you know, they, that just bothered me deeply. And so the place that I could find solace and that I could kind of really contemplate those things was out in the woods, you know, and when we, when we were at, you know, late high school age, let's say junior in high school, we kind of started getting the freedom to go out and it just kind of started being like where we would always try to go was somewhere out in the woods, right? It was like away from, from the city, from the parents, from all the stuff. And through that, you know, you're climbing on rocks and climbing mountains and we kept going further and further. And then next thing you know, you're just like, that's all you want to do. Mm-hmm. And then when that's all you want to do and those places are, are, are the places you really want to spend time, then it's, it's kind of obvious that you want to take care of those places. And, um, then you start seeing how people are connected to, to the environment and conservation. And um, often when you hurt the land, you hurt some people, you hurt some wildlife. And all those connections became clear. And there was just a synergy there that was like, that's clear where, where I have to work. And I, I had an epiphany, actually, just entirely. I know we like epiphanies because we talked about them when, when you were on my podcast. Yep. And uh, it, I was actually, and this is why it's an epiphany and it's ironic, too. I was driving, I lived in Montana at the time, and I was driving down the canyon that's right here by my house. I could be there in five minutes. And I was about to take the, uh, the law school exams, and I was thinking about being a, an environmental or a conservation lawyer. And I was driving down that canyon. My, my wife's parents lived in Colorado Springs at the time, so we were headed there from Montana. And the light was just hitting the canyon so amazing. And I had this epiphany, I'm like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to sit behind a desk and, and, and practice law to do conservation. I need to be out in this. Look at how amazing it is. It's ironic now too, that I do spend a ton of time behind a desk, but <laughs> because of that, I decided instead to go for a master of science program uh, at the university of Montana that had some forestry and some environmental policy and some other things. Um, but it was interesting that that th- there was like that one moment. I remember that moment going, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not taking that test. I'm following my heart. And it just kind of all culminated. And then ironically, I live five minutes from that space now where, when at the time I lived a thousand miles from it. Wow. That is an epiphany. And, and yeah, it's hard to unring that bell. You know, you can't really. Um, and I, I know that that's the same uh, epiphany that I had, we, we talked about it on your show and, um, the breach floated through the window of my consciousness. And I knew, um, absolutely without a doubt that I was going to be telling stories about salmon and, uh, for probably for the long haul. And, you know, here we are, um, you know, over a decade into this thing. Yeah. For young people listening, how you, you've, you landed in Missoula, Montana to, to go to school and at this point, you'd had an inkling of an idea that you wanted to concentrate your studies and your your life in the outdoors. Um, and this epiphany was just amazing. Um, but for folks that are practically looking to get into a, a meaningful life in the outdoors, what kind of advice can you give them? Well, first, I would say immersion. Take your young years, right, and go do field work. Work for the Forest Service. Work for a, a field institute, a research place. You know, the, the tie that binds is is spending the time quietly observing, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about hunting and fishing so much. You spend so much of that introspective time just observing and trying to see pattern and trying to see change, and it's just different than any other way you spend time in the woods. And I'd say try that for a while first, right? Because most people, they hit some sort of threshold where it starts speaking to them. 
you know, if you just, if you're a passive observer and you just kind of wander through and you're thinking about what you have to do afterwards or, you know, the future, you miss a lot of it. But if you slow down and you be quiet and you observe and pay attention, you start seeing amazing things that um, are right there under your nose. And so that'd be the first thing I'd say. And then just explore, right? I mean, when you're young, like that's what I did. I chased around ski bumming and, you know, rivers and mountains and backpacking and just anywhere I could go that was outside. And uh, it never lets you down, right? You might go through some tough times, but it never lets you down. And uh, first find out what you love. And there's always something there. And sometimes you have to ask yourself a little bit deeper questions. Like when I was out there, what did I love the most? Was it the idea of taking care of it? Was it maybe I watched one species and that was just so intriguing and fascinating. So maybe I'm going to go be a, a pika biologist or something because I enjoyed it so damn much above tundra, up in the tundra watching pika. Uh, you know, let your, let your adventures and your curiosity guide you. Um, and when you find cool people along those adventures, talk to them, learn from them. And, and to me, the path becomes clear by doing those things. And, and, you know, we're supposed to be outside. We're supposed to be connected to nature. And if you give it a chance and, and go immerse yourself in it, it will speak to you. Um, and, and you'll be told things as, as you were, Mark, uh, you know. And so just give it that chance would be the first piece of advice. That's terrific. I think that's just the best thing I've heard in a long time. Go be and go sit in it. And um, I, I completely agree with you. You know, it's a different experience entirely when you're just passing through it. But when you're intentionally sitting in it and you're able to be present and observe the patterns and observe the changes, you are changed. You are transformed. And you do find your people. There's no question. Um, I get to hang out with salmon people all the time here in our salmon nation by our region. And I see them more than I see my own family sometimes during the course of a year, you gravitate toward each other based on this love. So I think that's just fantastic advice, Aaron. Thank you for that. Um, I, here's a practical question. What is NWF? What does it do? And how did you find your way to it? Yeah, that's a big one too. There's a lot in that. Uh, NWF's National Wildlife Federation. So it's one of the oldest, largest conservation organizations in the country, right? We've been around since 1936. There was something called the North American Wildlife Conference that happened in 1936, where Teddy Roosevelt, Aldo Leopold, Ding Darling, our founder, all came together and said, man, something's got to be better than it is for wildlife. This was at the time when, you know, species we know today that are everywhere, like, you know, white-tailed deer or, or elk or something where there's millions of them they were dwindling. They were down to very few numbers, Turkey, you know, a lot of the things, cause people were just, there was, there wasn't enough rules about how to hunt. There wasn't enough rules about, you know, wildlife and seasons and so on. And there was a bunch of other problems beyond that, right? We had clean water issues. We had, we, we had just come out of the great depression. There was a lot of things that were pressing and resources were being exploited. And so this crew came together and they actually formed the National Wildlife Federation, and they formed a bunch of our state affiliates. The federation is an actual federation. So hmm. we're made up of 52 state and territorial affiliates from all over the country, and they actually vote and, and decide our policies and what we work on. So if we have our annual meeting, there's two delegates from each affiliate. They sit up in front like it's the Senate, um, hmm. and they have already pre uh Suppose some some resolutions that say, hey, we're concerned about XYZ issue in conservation or with wildlife, and we think this is the direction you should go. And we actually have staff that works with them to get to a resolution, you know, similar to a piece of legislation. And then at that meeting, we vote to adopt that. And that's our guiding light that says, here's where we go, because we collaborate with those folks. They're separate entities. They're their own 501c3s but they're our first partners and they definitely determine the makeup of how we work. So, you know, we work on basically every kind of conservation you can think of, whether it be clean water, clean air, whether it be, you know, wilderness proposals, whether it be 
the Northwest Salmon Plan, like like you're familiar with, that, that Representative Simpson uh, is pushing. Mm-hmm. Um, wind energy off the coast of the Northeast Coast. Um, we have a huge campaign called Banishing Paradise that's in the uh, Mississippi River Delta, trying to restore the river delta and bring back a lot of the amazing wildlife there. Um, Texas, we work on a campaign called Texas Living Waters. It's helping keep water in streams and streams and healthy uh, riparian areas. We work all over the country. And, you know, every time you do conservation, it's a mix of advocacy, policy, communications. You know, you, you have to develop what your positions are through a lot of conversations with leaders and, and knowing what you want and knowing the history. And then you have to go advocate for those and say, here's what we care about and here's why. And you have to get people energized and engaged uh, around those issues. And so, it's kind of like with anything, everybody who cares about the environment should be a member of some sort of organization, right? Because the organizations are doing the work of boiling down these issues and, and kind of feeding the general public, their members, the, the, the synthesized version that's easy to go say, hey, here's what we care about. And, and as a hunter, as a gardener, as a wildlife advocate, I want this. And, and you, my leader, I'm one of your constituents, and you need to take these as one of the things you care about uh, when you're thinking about policy. And, you know, the great thing about conservation is it pretty much pays for itself pretty much every time. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of statistics about for every dollar spent on LWCF, it's $3 in the, invested in the community. LWCF is uh, the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And that was set up with offshore royalties back in the in the sixties, we take a little bit of royalties. We put them in a fund that helps for access. Your neighborhood park might have LWCF money. Hmm. Your trailhead might have LWCF money. It's in every County in the whole country has received LWCF money. So for instance, those kind of things, right? It's, it's that cradle to the grave kind of work, right? You have to get the idea. Then you have to build the policy. Then you have to go advocate and get people to, to buy into what you're talking about and show them the benefits. Then you have to go convince decision makers. Then you have to go push the legislation and get it all the way to the president's desk and get it signed. And then once that happens, there's often some implementation, right? Where you're having to to stay on it and monitor it and make sure that it's acting and working as it's supposed to. So we do all of that, right? We have advocates, we have communicators, we have policy wonks, you know, we have, we have all those people. So, NWF is, is we have about 350 employees, pretty big organization for conservation. And uh, we've stood the test of time because we're good at it. Uh, and we continue to be good at it. And, uh, and we plan on being here forever. <laughs> well, give us your pitch. I mean, if I'm a person thinking about, I, I want to get engaged. I want to get involved with an org. I want to get involved. Like, why me? Why, and why NWF? Why should I get involved? Yeah, I mean kind of a little bit what I said there, right? We, we have the experience, the moxie, the history, uh, the relationships. I mean, you know, a lot of us don't like politics because politics, there's so much mudslinging. We see it all the time, but you know, our decision makers, ultimately the, the more people they hear from, the more we educate them on these things and show them how they're advantageous to their constituents, to their States, so on and so forth then the more likely they are to, to adopt these things. And, and, you know, the other part is, is, is talking to everyone, right? I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things I would fault, you know, the big E environmentalism uh, with a little bit is that a lot of times it's become a we're right and you're wrong, right? Type of an issue. Mm-hmm. And whether you agree with that or not, you know, uh, there's all kinds of Americans, there's all kinds of stripes, Right. There, there's there's tribal members, there's people in cities, there's people in rural places, and we have to talk to everybody. Conservation is an everybody thing. And, you know, making those connections serves the land and the wildlife. Um, and so that's what NWF's been good at. We, we, we have relationships with Republicans and Democrats and, and everybody, and we really try to think of ourselves as this big tent organization who, who wants everybody. Um, we, we need to build a conservation army, right? These things uh, have lasting effects. They have uh, little fingers into every piece of, of American life. 
right? You, you think you're not engaged in conservation when you're taking a walk in your city park, right? But what songbirds came through that happened to be sitting on that tree right there that used that riparian area that was restored 10 years ago that's just, you know, a quarter mile away. What does it mean when they're fertilizing that lawn and it runs into that stream and then you've got water quality issues? Um, things like that, right? There, there's some engagement in conservation in just about every aspect of life. And so what I would say to someone who wants to get engaged, you know, nwf.org, there's, there's things about all of our different programs on there. Take a look there. Um, you know, we have staffers that, that work on so many different aspects of this that have very developed positions that you can learn about. Um, and, and, and if it's not NWF, just get involved in conservation, you know, get, give your 35 bucks, 35 bucks or, or whatever it is for your annual membership for your conservation organization is, is a minimum thing, right? I mean, you can do that. Invest a little bit locally too, right? Your state wildlife federations or, or even your hyper local city county type conservation organizations. It's worth it. It's worth the money. Um, get engaged, show up at your meetings, right? I mean, these guys are, are, are your leaders. They're your elected leaders. It, they need to listen to you and they, and they need to hear from you to do that. If you just throw your hands up, you know what's going to happen. Well, you were coming out of school and uh, coming out of childhood with a big heart of fire for all of this. How did you then wend your way into NWF? How did you find yourself into the role that you're in now? And, and can you give us a little light on what you're doing and uh, I know sure. what you're doing and I'm, I'm a big fan, but um, can you tell our listeners the kind of work that you're up to? Sure. Um, well, like I said, I went to graduate school, got a master's of science in environmental studies, which involved, you know, some forestry, some policy. I worked a lot on roadless area policy in graduate school. It was at the time of the roadless rule, which some folks may remember. Um, or just after and, and implementing that. And there was some state rules, the Idaho roadless rule. I worked a lot on the Colorado roadless rule later. Um, and after I did that, I went to work for Trout Unlimited in Colorado. Um, and I was the field person for, for the state of Colorado for TU. And we worked on a lot of things you, you might expect, right? Like uh, protecting wilderness study areas. These are BLM lands that are roadless right, that are some of the best fishing and, and, and hunting and, and wildlife habitat out there. And they're kind of, they used to be at least a little bit unknown, right? And people didn't necessarily know what a WSA was or, or what these things were. So we were working in, in that and in the roadless rule, trying to protect the best, right? I mean, one of the things I say is, is uh, habitat equals opportunity, right? If you have good habitat, you have opportunity to hunt or fish or bike or hike or do other things we like to do outside. And without that, you don't, right? And, and you can almost see a direct correlation. Places where people live where they don't have access to the outdoors, conservation isn't a big thing, right? But places where you see there's a lot of access to the outdoors and people get to immerse in it, uh, conservation is, is a lot bigger deal. That's why you see some of the biggest engagement in places like Montana and Colorado and Wyoming, you know, so... I got here by basically just following what we talked about earlier, right? I had that epiphany. I went to school, just followed my heart. And it was interesting. I went on the Smith River in Montana, which is a famed river. Um, there's actually a, a mine that's proposed up above there that there's been a fight going to, you know, we, we're worried about the similar things that we're worried about in Bristol Bay. Wouldn't have the same level of impact, but certainly it's a pristine landscape. Um, went on the Smith river right when I graduated and the folks at TU actually had called me three times while I was gone uh, to set up an interview. And the last one said, you know, well, this is the last time we're going to try you. Um, but I had been gone for a week, completely off the grid. Um, but that, from that moment, I, I took that job, moved back down to Colorado and have just kind of thought of myself as a student and a sponge the whole time, right? There's, there's always more to learn. Um, there's never a, a dearth of conservation issues. Um, so I've just immersed. I've been uh, on a couple of boards and nonprofits as, as other le learning experiences. Um, and then I got to, to National Wildlife Federation about six years ago. 
Uh, I came over here to, to work on hunting, angling, conservation issues specifically. Um, at this point, you know, well after my mid-20s and, and that immersion that we talked about earlier got me back into hunting and fishing and just so deeply in love with, with hunting particularly. Um, that visceral connection and that that amazingness that that is derived from from eating something that that you know is that wild and free and that you did all the work to hike it back home and and butcher it and take care of it and you know that to me was was just I knew I was supposed to be doing that it it, it had so many little fingers back to you know I could I could feel my ancient ancestor somewhere in there like these little inklings of some, our people, everybody's people have done this for millennia and, and we're supposed to be doing this. And it, and it just reconnected me. And so then that was like sporting conservation, right? To make sure that we have this um, is where I want to be. So I came to NWF about six years ago, started as our Western field guy, uh, working on things like energy development, um, you know, there's massive energy development across the West and it has a big impact on fish and wildlife. Um, advocacy, as far as like getting more voices, more credible voices, talking to people, talking to decision makers, um, helped get this thing called Artemis going, which is our sports women's initiative. Um, and that's getting more women's voices, more women hunter anglers out there, you know, knew some incredible women that were doing amazing things and just weren't being highlighted enough. And they were also thinking about it and, and communicating it in such amazing ways that were different and fresh and smart. And I was like, why isn't this something that we're highlighting and showcasing? And if you look at a lot of the sporting conservation history, it's all, all men. And, uh, so really promoted that. And I mean, I can get into what we're working on now. Uh, but that's kind of the story of how I got here. Yeah. And, um, by the way, I love, that title, Artemis, I think that's just beautiful and brilliant. And I, I noticed that earlier today, and it's, uh, it, it, I think it's perfect. I, one little side channel before we get into the kind of the big ticket items that you're working on right now. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that you kind of came back into your outdoors hunting in particular through kind of a mm, unique doorway yeah let's say um you you became friends with somebody who was an advocate and an activist for PETA how did just I'm curious for yeah. my own satisfaction like how did that come about like both on their side of things coming to hunting and then did that fuel that kind of pure feeling that you were talking about earlier with that connectivity yeah I'll try to answer that in full but I'll probably miss some parts but yeah, I mean, how that happened was um, in, in Missoula where I went to graduate school, you know, one of the things that, that you know, good hunters, ethical hunters have in common is food, right? Mm -hmm. they, they care about food and they, they love that, that pure wild food. And, you know, we were doing a lot of gardening and doing a lot of wild harvesting of, of you know, huckleberries and anything we could find. And we came across this guy who was a farmer and he ran a big farm and um, we, we got, it was a community farm and we got a plot there. It was when we were living in a, you know, a condo and uh, we got a plot there and started really engaging with the community at the farm. And the guy who ran the farm was this fella. And of course, you know, we were simpatico. We struck it up pretty quickly with, with food and gardening and, and wild harvesting and so on. And, and, you know, he's like, you know, are you a hunter? It'd be good to hunt together sometimes. I'm like, well, you know, I used to hunt, um, but I, I haven't hunted in years. And, uh, and, he, and then that just kind of opened the door. He's like, you don't say. He's like, well, I never hunted until a handful of years ago. And I was like, well, you know, how'd you get into it? And uh, he starts telling me that, yeah, he used to be a PETA activist. And he had done the thing like, you know, go to a city and see a lady with a fur coat and throw fake blood on her. And, you know, those kinds of wow. things and protest outside of fur coat stores and, and this and that. But he had gotten there close to the same way that I was starting to think, right? Like, okay, if you're concerned about food, if you're concerned about, you know, healthy ecosystems 
and you and you're looking for a good protein source, wild, organic, all those things. Well, then what better is is there than you know the the native critters that live right here where you do? Um, you know, up there we could I could drive 15, 20 minutes from my house, turn off the road, start hiking, and be and be you know hunting, and literally you know harvesting animals from right out of the same watershed that I lived. Um, places I spent a lot of time. I knew those critters lived wild and free. And, you know, when, when my kids were babies, we would float the Blackfoot River and I could point up to the ridges where I hunted and, and tell them, you know, that's up where dad got that elk and that elk that we eat lives up here. And this, the water they drink flow into this river and flows down through our town. Just was kind of all encompassing. And at the same time, that water was, was, was watering the gardens that we were eating out of. And it just became this kind of holistic deal. And he was just kind of an icon of that. He showed up in my life at the right time. He had deeply thought about what it meant to, to eat meat and to, to harvest food and, and to connect with the ecology of a place. And it was just like, finally, someone kind of has the, the mutual respect uh, for the wildlife that I do. And I see my path. And from then on, um, we went hunting together and, uh, you know, I caught the bug big time, you know, the, the feeling of being out in the woods and, and working quietly and learning behavior intimately of animals that just, I can't get enough of that. Um, and so there we went. Well, food is inarguable. And, uh, I, I just love these stories of breakthroughs, you know, with people that, um, may be, uh, you know, at one point or another on different sides of the fence, but come to a confluence because they share something bigger than themselves. In this case, yeah, this appreciation for the wild, this appreciation for where a pure food source comes from. What other issues that you deal with do you find this natural confluence of people coming together for things that are bigger than themselves? What are, what are some of the big issues you're working on that may have some of those surprising breakthroughs. Yeah, I guess one of the ones that comes to mind most immediately is um, we have a campaign to promote the use of non-lead uh, while hunting. You know, alternatives to lead. Uh, and one of the reasons is is you know we learned back in the '80s or or so, maybe before, but it really came to a head in the '80s was that when you put lead out on the landscape, you know, particularly. Uh, waterfowl they like to put it down in their in their throat and and mull it around with rocks and things like that and that's how they digest their food and so what was happening is that we were seeing some detrimental effects to waterfowl um, from ingesting lead pellets well come to a handful of years ago maybe some people knew it but the time that it really was kind of explored was that if you if you shoot a big game animal with a lead projectile well lead is soft and it breaks up and it goes everywhere. And when that happens, uh, you know, as a hunter, if you kill an elk, you leave the gut pile very often um, and, and, and the carcass. Well, if, if lead has spread throughout that and say a golden eagle comes along, well, then that golden eagle is going to ingest lead and it's going to have detrimental effects from, from you know, minor Maybe maybe they lay less one less egg, or their egg shells are thinner, or something to that effect. To major severe lead poisoning, can't fly, can't move, can't can't do anything. Um, and then you think there's so many other scavengers too, right? Bears and and mountain lions and coyotes and all these different things that we enjoy as wildlife advocates. And then you start talking to people about it, and almost everybody goes, "Well, man, if I can, if I can just." keep one animal from being lead poisoned, well, then that's probably worth it, right? There's not, it, nobody goes, well, I'm going to shoot lead anyway, because I just don't care about animals. I mean, nobody says that. Um, and so the connections that you find, the, the cool people that you find that are good people out there kind of unknowingly doing something, you know, that they didn't even mean to be doing. And then you show them some of the science. We, we worked with the, the North American uh, non-lead hunting partnership. I'm not sure if I'm saying their name exactly right. Something very similar to that. And, and they do these excellent demonstrations with ballistics gels and 
They set up water tanks and they shoot them and they show the lead. They, they actually collect it in these jugs. And when people see that, they go, oh my gosh, this is all going everywhere every time I shoot one of these things. And it just kind of clicks like a light bulb. And when we, we've done this and people walk away saying, I'm, I'm changing, I'm switching. I'm not going to use lead anymore. Those kinds of things, those kind of like good people learning something and changing their behavior to benefit wildlife, I think those are the kind of things that, that really make me happy to be in conservation, that, that you know, get me to where, where you were talking about there, the question. Um, so that, that would be one good example. And I mean, I can, I can talk about a lot more of what we're working on if you, if you like, but tried to answer well, your question. I love that. That's a great visual uh, story to, I can see it in my mind's eye. And yeah, I remember that when lead went away and, um, you know, you, then you, you, you think about it in hindsight, you're like, why were we doing that in the first place? Um, that's a great example. What about in your mind, what are some of the two of the big ticket items that you get to work on through NWF and, um, things that you think are game changers and necessary to move the needle on the really critical conservation issues we face right now. Sure. And I'll say a few and then I'll, and then I'll give you a big umbrella that covers all of that. Um, one of them is, is wildlife connectivity and corridors, right? As, as we know in the West and, and where you live, you know, these are great places to live and a lot more people are moving there. And that means more roads, more houses, more, you know, more ways for animals to die, frankly. Um, and the connectivity, both understanding where animals are going to need to move and then making sure and, and working to give them that space. I think it's, it's humble, it's responsible, it's, it's respectful of those critters. And there's some pretty big efforts out there right now to do that. There's some statewide efforts. I know, uh, Conservation Northwest up there in Washington is doing some amazing stuff with wildlife yeah. overpasses and underpasses. Yep. Mitch and Chase and those guys are, are doing some great work. There's there's stuff in in many different states, whether it be you know overpasses that allow for amphibians to cross in in North Carolina, right, in more wet places. Um, whether it be here in Colorado or Wyoming, overpasses because you have big ungulate migrations. Those kinds of things, both just recognizing okay, you got two pieces of landscape that are pretty healthy and these critters have to move between one of, one of those places. Many of the animals we all love don't live in the exact same place all year. They need to move in order to carry out their life cycle. So that's something that's really rewarding and you can see amazing results. I mean, I, I would ask your listeners, look up you know, Washington wildlife corridors and you'll find camera footage of they put in an overpass. Next thing you know, here comes a bear or a moose or a wolverine or a cougar or, you know, anything, uh, any kind of wildlife likes those better than trying to cross a road. So that's something that's really cool. There's, there's a thing called Secretarial Order 3362, and it was in the previous administration. It really dealt with resourcing uh, state fish and game agencies to, uh, to help protect these areas, identify them monitor uh, where animals are moving and then implement uh, strategies to help them move safely between these habitat types. That's That to me, I love because it's tangible, right? You can fix that and then you can see. And we have a place here in Colorado, Highway 9, and it was averaging about 600 animal vehicle collisions a year. They did this project and now we're under 100. Um, so you're saving 500 animals. There was uh, two fatalities were happening, uh, human fatalities were happening there per year uh, from wildlife collisions. Those have been drastically reduced. Those kinds of things, it, it's almost overnight, right? And, and then there's more wildlife, people are safer, very tangible connection to conservation. That fires me up. Um, we work on another thing that I don't work on directly very much, more advocating and, and communicating about it, but it's Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And that piece of legislation is a very strongly supported bipartisan piece of legislation that is out there to support the critters that are just kind of struggling, right? That are not quite on the endangered species list, but they're, but they're dwindling. They're having trouble for one reason or the other. Each state has what they call a state wildlife action plan. And those state, that's the state's plan to 
mitigate the loss of all these different, you know, animals, wildlife. And the Recovering America's Wildlife Act provides a big chunk of funding to go and address those and actually give the kind of ER treatment that those animals need so they don't go on the Endangered Species Act. And then the other beautiful thing about that is that they that helps all kinds of wildlife. Sportsmen and women should should love it. Bird watchers should love it. Fishermen should love it. Uh, though every time you take care of wildlife and take care of their habitat, other wildlife benefits as well. And so that one is really cool. It's a chance to really help those struggling species. You know, have a new lease on life and and perhaps come back like some of our game species and some of our more iconic species like bald eagles and things like that. Um, chronic wasting disease is another one we work on. Um, mm. Chronic wasting disease is a, is a real threat to, to ungulates and, and maybe ultimately people. It's jumped many species barriers. It's not been recorded in humans yet, um, but it has been in primates. Um, it's a prion. It's a protein that, that persists on the landscape for a long time. Uh, it needs like 1,400 degrees or something to that effect to incinerate it in order to make it die. So wow. it's in urine, it's in body, it's in body fluids. That needs to be addressed deeply, right? And so there's some there's some different legislation out there we're hoping to see happen that would provide some more funding for research. Right now, there's not a live test um, where where the animal can stay alive and be tested. We need that. Uh, we need things like game farms. You should not be able to have wild animals uh, in farms. And that's one of the biggest uh, transmission vectors that we're seeing. Um, interstate uh, commerce and, and transport. You shouldn't be able to just take animals willy-nilly that could perhaps have CWD across state lines and into other places. Really transfer them anywhere. Um, you know, that's a, that's a severe threat. It's not documented enough or regulated enough. Um, when people do do that. So we really want to see some, some movement on CWD. That's another big one. And then last, I'll just end with, uh, you know, there's a few different things happening right now in the new administration. It's a thing called 3030, which is the idea of, of protecting and conserving 30% of the landscape and waters uh, by 2030 um, okay. to, in order to, you know, stave off some of the worst impacts of just habitat loss and biodiversity loss. That's a big one. You're going to see more and more about that all the time. We're working on that deeply, uh, hoping that private lands and public lands and everybody can get engaged. Um, and then along those lines, too, is infrastructure. You've heard the president probably talk a little bit, most people, about infrastructure lately. Infrastructure yeah. is more important to wildlife and conservation than you think. Uh, it could be replacing a bad culvert uh, that's, that's blown out, and then that means less sediment in the stream and maybe fish passage. It could be, uh, you know, fencing or, or water, water infrastructure that helps the water be cleaner so that when it goes back into the streams after it's been treated, it's more healthy for fish and wildlife. It could be restoration projects that help, uh, you know, uh, support river banks and uh, augment things like uh, songbirds and, and other wildlife that use the Mississippi River, for instance. So those things are, are those investments in infrastructure go beyond just what you might think like roads and bridges and so on uh, that can really help both people and wildlife. And then the last thing I'll say just overarching is climate change, right? Climate change is having an impact on all of this. Um, we just did a, a, a audio series with a woman from Oregon who does a lot of salmon fishing off the coast of where you're at, you know, seeing out there in, in the waters of Oregon that are typically cool, things like, you know, sunfish and, and, and tuna and other fish that don't typically live there. Um, waters are warming, oceans are acidifying, uh, snowmelt is lasting longer. That all has an impact on hunters and anglers too, and an impact on basically everything we do. So we have to get serious about that. And, and when we do, Wildlife will benefit, people will benefit, and it's kind of an overarching theme over a lot of the work we do. That's a great rundown, Aaron. Thank you. These are all fantastic issues that National Wildlife Federation are working on. I want to come back to this idea of strange bedfellows and this confluence. Um, earlier, you referred to 
PETA and your friend that got you back into hunting. And PETA, it, for our listeners who don't know, is uh, an, an organization known as uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Now, when you think about hunters and fishermen and fisherwomen, um, you're, I guess maybe the first thing that comes to mind is not activists and conservationists, but it's certainly been my experience that folks that are out in the field, sportsmen and women, hunters and anglers, are in fact right on the front lines of activism for conservation. And really, you've given some great examples about how they really are on, on the macro level for the ethical treatment of animals. Can you, first of all, is, has that been your your um, observation as well? And, and can you um, maybe expand on that a little bit and the work that you do and even in some of your sister organizations that you, you work with? Sure. Well, first I would say that one of the easiest ways to get in touch with wildlife is to go and be where they're at and try not to be noticed, <laughs> to be quiet, <laughs> to be stealthy, to go when they're most active at four in the morning, five in the morning, you know, tromp out into the woods in the dark and then set up and just watch and listen. Not too many people who don't hunt or fish do that. I mean, some do, sure, but it's kind of a necessity if you want to be any good at hunting particularly. Um, so first off, you're going to have an, an intimate knowledge and see and observe things that are not typically available to people who don't do that. Um, so first off, you have that knowledge. And then second off, also as a hunter, you do that year after year. So you have a longer term understanding of what's happening in that landscape. Um, you know, even in my life, I know places I've hunted, you go back to and, you know, some of those forests that were alive 10 years ago are now all beetle killed. Different things are happening in that forest. Um, and so one of the things that happens with, with hunters a lot is that when they get to know and, and observe and, and intimately be part of that landscape, A, they fall in love with it, and B, they know it as good as anyone and so are then the best emissaries for conserving it, protecting it, taking care of it. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but that's been my experience when, when you meet those kind of people they just know so much. They care so much. They're awesome to talk to. They're great advocates. They're authentic voices. They're credible when you take them to a decision maker. Um, and and, and they're, they're kind of can't be disputed, right? As opposed to maybe somebody who lives in downtown somewhere and goes and hikes once every two weeks on the weekend or whatever, you know, while their voice matters too, I'm not, I'm not trying to discount it. The level of intimacy and knowledge and, and things that that it takes, you know, in order to be a good hunter, you have to learn how animals behave in a deeply distinct way. You can't just kind of wander out there and hope to see one. You have to understand how they mate, how they travel, how, what they eat, you know, when are they going to be active, all those different things. And so that just invests your time and energy into learning about them, learning what they need. And then once you do that, most people tend to really want to protect and conserve those types of things. That's great. At at first blush, um, you know, for years now, when we've been talking about meaningful ways to take action for Bristol Bay, we have mentioned eat wild, save wild. That is to eat the wild salmon from Bristol Bay. And by doing that, you're, if you demand it on your plate, you're going to demand the freshwater habitat sufficient for it to keep coming back to your plate remain intact, right? So not doing like giant mega projects like uh the proposed pebble mine in the headwaters of Bristol Bay and its last fully intact salmon system. So the people that are harvesting those fish, the commercial fishermen, just like you were talking about with the uh, anglers and hunters, they know that landscape. They know it intimately. They know it multi-generationally. And not only is it a livelihood, you know, everything always in a political debate seems to come down to dollars and jobs and, um, and it doesn't seem to have clout if, unless it does. And certainly that's a big part of things. But this is also about a way of life, a way of living that is 
absolutely fundamental to somebody's core existence and to the things and the values that they have that they want to pass down to the next generation. So I'm in complete agreement. Knowing something day in and day out does bond a person to a place and frankly, a cause more than anything. Speaking of Bristol Bay, what have you observed in Colorado and the mines there and What's going on on the ground in Colorado that helps inform what's at stake in a place like Bristol Bay? And uh, can you use your lens that you have and your pulpit that you have um, as this active member in, in NWF and a part of NWF to you know shed light on, on the, the big situation in Bristol Bay, especially through the lens of Colorado and its mining there? Yeah, I mean, it. I guess even beyond Colorado, the West, right? The West has a long history of hard rock mining. There's a bunch of them. Um, Colorado's are luckily pretty small for the most part. There's some big ones, but luckily they're pretty small, right? And the problem with them usually is they're kind of a forever thing. Um, they don't. They don't go away, right? There's no. You can't. You can't give me a great example of like this mine is all cleaned up and everything's fine there all of them have some lasting impact with hard rock mining. It's the nature of the way they're done when they pour that, when they pull that ore out of the ground, right. And they put it in these fields. And as that, as it's exposed to oxygen, you get things like acid, acid drainage, and you get other chemicals and things that are introduced into the watershed. We had a big uh, blowout not that long ago down on the Animus river uh, near Durango where the river ran orange like the entire river, it's a big river, uh, ran orange for multiple different days and killed all the all the fish. And, you know, it's a water source for many places. And that mine hasn't been active for a long, long time, right? And it's and it's something that just is gonna be there unless we unless we try to do something about it. But even if we do do something about it, it's never gonna entirely go away, right? We have to treat the water. We have to we have to do all these different things perpetually. Um, Crested Butte, Colorado, uh, now uh, just a tourist mecca, one of the most beautiful places on earth. They have uh, a mine above town that hasn't been operating for quite some time. But the stream that comes off of that mine runs right through town and is part of the city's water supply. It has to be treated forever. There's no plan. Wow. There's no way. There's no nothing you're going to change. That has, and it's a $2 million or so cost per year, it used to be at least when I knew, to treat that water that that city always has to incur and deal with uh, in order to use that water. Um, So that's the kind of thing I think that could happen to Bristol Bay, right? You do that. And not only do you have kind of the immediate impacts, which you can can damn sure bet that you're going to see much less salmon, much less healthy habitat, but then also that there's not a time you can look to in the future and go, oh, it's all better now, right? right. And especially if you think about that salmon are declining anyway, um, and death by a thousand cuts, some, some fairly big. And then you take this and you bring the sword to the knife fight uh, and really cut up their habitat and really change the situation of so many of the earth salmon here. There's just not a good outlook. Um, in Colorado and Arizona and New Mexico, a lot of these states give you prime examples, not even on the scale of Bristol Bay, but if you did what you're doing there, it's the same thing, just magnified a lot bigger, and the outcomes aren't pretty. Right, in, in an entirely wet climate, whereas uh, a lot of the areas yeah. you mentioned are arid or fairly arid. What a great summation. Um, we've talked on your show about finding space at the table for everyone. And I think it's critical. I think we need to do a lot more listening to each other and being a hunter and an angler, um, being a foodie there, these are, again, these are inarguable kind of things. We all kind of come together on these in your vision, Aaron, and and then work you're doing, are there other ways or what is the best prescription you can come up with for, really finding a place at the table for everyone to navigate 
through these incredibly difficult waters that you know we're we're facing with climate change and conservation what what's your best summation of that yeah and i think probably the simplest way that i try to approach it is treat strangers like neighbors yeah right you know you, you when somebody says something i think we've we've turned into this kind of divisive nature of where we just automatically kind of auger into our position we're not doing good enough job listening to people um one of the things you can always do is go talk to people about their values uh, their values are often similar i mean it, you're hard pressed to to go talk to average joe or jane on the street who's also a parent and a community member and an employee and all these things that you are and and find out that you're totally different than them you just don't. You find out that, you know, we're pretty much the same. And there's this last little thing that maybe we disagree on. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be friends. Doesn't mean we shouldn't talk. In fact, that's probably what's going to create the most lasting conservation solutions is when disparate folks talk and they, they explore their values and they share their experiences. And then they whittle it down to that last little bit and say, okay, what is it here that we need to get through? And if you've established a relationship by reaching out to them, by treating them with respect, by listening, then the chances of their becoming a, a lasting solution are much greater, in my opinion. So the first piece of advice I would give to anybody is just, you know, don't be a keyboard warrior. Don't sit in your house and, and throw barbs at people. Go talk to them. Uh, you know, go actually think about what ha you have in common instead of think about your differences, right? Don't fall into the traps that the politicians set for us that are trying to divide us. Um, think of the country like a community, right? Um, we all want the same things. We all want healthy landscapes, healthy environment for our families, good schools, clean air, uh, you know, safe communities. I mean, we all want that. And uh, just remember that we all want that. No matter what color or race or gender someone is, they want those same things. Um, if you can keep that in mind when you, when you, meet people i think it just it goes forever it goes a long way and it and it, it both makes you a better person and it and it invites more interesting conversation and more productive conversation amen well spoken brother well we're going to launch you right into the speed round and nobody escapes <laughs> the speed round and it's uh it's super fun you wouldn't believe though there's some really interesting answers that come for these next three questions i'm about to lay on you first one is Let's say, God forbid, your house were on fire, and I knocked on wood here. But uh, obviously, you get your loved ones out. What is the one physical thing, besides getting your loved ones out, your pets, you take out of the house? Oh, boy. I have no idea. I don't really care that much about the physical things compared to you just told me what, what I would take. I, I guess it'd probably be like, you know, my phone or something, just so that I could definitely communicate something practical like that. It's funny. There's, a, I think there's like a fifty-fifty split between the, the the practical stuff and then the, uh, the little more esoteric and you know meaningful. Like uh, somebody recently said, their grandmother's letters. That was a good one. Um, yeah, sorry, okay. I didn't come up with a more sentimental answer there. I, I don't have any too it's, too many like cherished keepsakes from from family or anything like that. It's the it's the roll of the dice, man. It's this yeah. is what makes us, uh, you know, makes it a fruit salad here. So, um, how about then, like speaking of esoteric, let's make it a little bit more of a spiritual sort of house. What what are the two characteristics about you that you would pull out of that fire that you couldn't live without? The two most important things that make Aaron Aaron. Compassion would definitely be the first one. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and empathy, I guess those are kind of one and the same in, in my mind in a lot of ways. But um, honesty would be the other one. Uh, you know, it, there's not really any kind of one rule me and my family abide by except for honesty. It's like it's the only thing you don't do in our house is lie about anything. And it's awesome because it's just so ingrained in us that it just like never crosses anyone's mind. It's awesome being a parent that way. Your kids get to tell you the truth about everything. And it's just like there's, that's the standard, and there's, there's no violating. So honesty, I would definitely keep no matter what. Booyah, big time, man. That's that's fantastic. And then lastly, is there something that you would let burn? 
Is there anything that you would let burn about yourself or, you know, things in your life that uh, you would just love to see purified by that big fire? Sure. Any bitterness and anger, right? I mean, that's only an inhibitor to, to doing good things and, and treating people right. And, you know, if you, if you look at people who do bad things, they're usually someone's done something bad to them. They're bitter. They're angry. Excuse me. They're angry because someone's mistreated them. Right. And so that is an inhibiting factor to being a good human is holding on to anger and, and being bitter. So um, I would leave that. Very wise, my friend. Aaron Kindle, thank you for joining us today. And um, for folks out there who want to follow along with the work you're doing, get involved, where, where will you send people to uh, join and, and follow along the work that you're doing? Sure. The quick way is just look up NWF Outdoors. Um, we have nwfoutdoors.org, uh, uh, which is our podcast. We have um, nwf.org backslash outdoors is our website. Um, I'd say check out Artemis too. Artemis is amazing to check out. Um, you know, Facebook and, and Instagram are all all just pretty simple with those words if you search them. Well, fantastic. I am really grateful for the time we get to spend together. I'm looking forward to some more down the trail here. But for today, thank you, Aaron, for joining us here on Save What You Love. And I'll look forward to our next conversation. So long for now. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hopefully one day we'll uh, wet a line together. Talk to you that soon. That sounds great, man. Take care, Aaron. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land waters, and other inhabitants today.